More Welsh music, which means more Welsh cast. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind I'd like to flaunt and take to dinner. Welcome to the Welsh cast. My name is Jamie. Okay, so we have two more Kings of Wales before we leave Gildas and his spittle-flecked rantings. And something that you might notice as we go forward is that we haven't been provided a tyrant of Poes, nor for any of the Eastern Kingdoms. Sure, we don't know where Aurelius Cananus ruled, but that's not an affirmative statement of a king of Poes, Regid, or another kingdom by Gildas. Rather, that's just an unknown ruler who might have ruled over one of those areas but he very easily could have just been a failed usurper. So we're missing some kingdoms. And I think it's really important to keep aspects like that in mind. In today's age, it doesn't take a lot of effort to find out who the leader of the various countries of the world are. Nothing more than a couple keystrokes, really. I mean, the world's really interconnected, and information is readily accessible for most things. And if you're with the NSA, pretty much all information is accessible. But at the time of Gildas, that just wasn't the case. So when we're hearing about how awful things are, and why they're terrible, who the worst people were, and what their love lives looked like, I think we should keep in mind how limited our view here is. We're just hearing the thoughts of a deeply religious writer who was writing from a monastery in Wales. He was educated, certainly, and he was definitely useful, but due to the constraints of the era, he just didn't have as much information available to him as we'd like. And some of the information that he was relying upon could very likely have just been passed along to him through the rumor mill. So, I'm still banging that same old drum that Gildas isn't entirely reliable. And as a consequence, simply because we aren't hearing about the awful rulers of Poes and any of the British kingdoms in the East, doesn't mean that their rulers were fantastic. Gildas just might not have heard of them. Conversely, not everything that we're being told should be taken as an absolute fact, because frankly, we have no idea where our nutty little monk is drawing his information from. So, now that I've given you your usual reminder, let's see what Gildas has to say about King Kunaglas. And just like last time, I'm going to do my best to give it a fire and brimstone flare. And thou too, Kunaglas! Why art thou fallen into the filth of thy former naughtiness? Yea, since the very first spring of thy tender youth, thou bear, thou rider and ruler of many, and guider of the chariot which is the receptacle of the bear, thou condemner of God and vilifier of his order, thou tawny butcher as the Latin tongue thy name signifies, why dost thou raise so great a war as well against men as against God himself, against men yea, thy own countrymen, with deadly weapons, and against God with thine infinite offenses. Why, besides thine other innumerable backslidings, having thrown out of doors thy wife, does thou in lust, or rather in stupidity of thy mind, against the apostles express prohibition, denouncing that no adulterers can be partaking in the kingdom of heaven, esteem her detestable sister, who had vowed unto God the everlasting Catenani, as the very dower, in the language of the poet, of the celestial nymphs. Why dost thou provoke with thy frequent injuries the lamentations and sighs of saints, by thy means corporally afflicted, which will in time to come, like a fierce lioness, break thy bones into pieces? Desist, I beseech thee, as the prophet saith, from wrath, and leave off thy deadly fury which thou breathest out against heaven and earth, against God and his flock, and in which time will be thy own torment. 
Rather, with altered mind, obtain the prayers of those who possess a power of binding over this world, when in this world they bind the guilty, and of loosing when they loose the penitent. Be not, as the apostle saith, proudly wise, nor hope thou in the uncertainty of riches, but in God who giveth thee many things abundantly, and the amendment of thy manners purchase unto thyself a good foundation for hereafter and seek to enter into that real and true state of existence which will be not transitory, but everlasting. Otherwise, thou shalt know and see, yea, in this very world, how bad and bitter a thing it is for thee to leave the Lord thy God, and not to have his fear before shine eyes. And in the next, how thou shalt be burned in the foul encompassing flames of endless fire, nor yet by any manner of means shalt ever die. For the souls of the sinful are as eternal and perpetual fire as the souls of the just in perpetual joy and gladness. Gildas. Okay, yet again we have another naughty ruler. And incidentally, I love how this translation uses that word. Any word could be used. Wicked, evil, malignant. But he goes with naughty, which, if it wasn't for the rest of the rant, might make you think that you're listening to Fifty Shades of Gildas. But the reality is that despite our 19th century translation, this rant is all bile and vitriol, with absolutely no eyebrow waggling to be found anywhere. In fact, did he catch that he called him a bear? Which, as you've probably guessed, is yet another beast of the apocalypse. So right off the bat, we know that we're in for a rough ride. Now depending on the lineage and how you read his name, it's possible that Kudaglass was the son of Owain Danwin, who was the King of Ross. And the Kingdom of Ross, by the way, is in mid-northwestern Wales, the area that includes Denbyshire. And it is possible that Cunaglas was that prince, that he was Kinloss. And frankly, Kinloss is the Welsh way to spell Cunaglas. So chances are that he ruled over Ross. And that would make sense since Denarth, which was a major Dark Age fort in Kinloss's Kingdom of Ross, translates to Fort of the Bear, and that might have given Gildas the bear idea. But speaking about his name, Gildas claims that Cunaglas translates to Tawny Butcher in Latin. And this is yet another one of those fun things that makes Gildas rather human. Because even though he's writing in Latin, and he is classically trained, Cunaglas does not, in fact, translate to Tawny Butcher. But despite that, it does seem like he was something of a butcher, redheaded or not. We're told that he was starting wars against other British kingdoms, and Christian kingdoms at that. Though, if Gildas is to be trusted here, that might not have bothered Cunaglas, since it sounds like he was rather pagan himself, given that he condemned God and vilified the church. So it looks like right here we have yet another pagan ruler in Christian Wales. And we also have internal warfare. So it doesn't seem like things were very unified in the West. And that seems to really be bothering Gildas. And the icing on the cake for him is that it sounds like Cunaglas pulled a bit of an Oliver Queen and he bailed on his wife in order to hook up with her sister. And I know that we've been hearing about the various philandering kings and some pretty creepy stuff, but that sister move is still pretty damn low. And you might be wondering how this story ends. But the reality is we really don't know what happened to Cunaglas after the writing of the manuscript. And even the story of Ross is a bit shadowy which isn't surprising given his close proximity to Gwyneth. So unfortunately, we're just going to have to leave it at that. But worry not. Gildas saved the best for last. Maglacunus.
also known as Maelgwyn ap Cadwallon, Maelgwyn Gwyneth, Maelgwyn Here, which translates to Maelgwyn the Tall, and Maelgwyn Fower, which translates to Maelgwyn the Great. And Gildas had a ton to say about this guy. He sort of goes on and on about him. But this is vintage Gildas. There are plenty of tidbits to chew over, plenty of vitriol, and of course, plenty of overwrought biblical allusions. So stick with me here, and then we're going to sort through what he's telling us and try and learn a bit about Maelgwyn in the process. Here we go. And likewise, O dragon of the island, who has deprived many tyrants, as well as their kingdoms, as of their lives, and though the last mentioned in my writing, the first in mischief, exceeding many in power and also in malice, more liberal than others in giving, more licentious in sinning, strong in arms, but stronger in working thy own soul's destruction. Maglacunus, why art thou, as if soaked in the wine of the sodomitical grape, foolishly rolling in that black pool of thine offenses? Why dost thou willfully heap like a mountain upon thy kingly shoulders such a load of sins? Why dost thou show thyself unto the king of kings, who hath made thee as well in kingdom as in stature of body higher than almost all the other chiefs of Britain? Not better likewise in virtues than the rest, but on the contrary, for thy sins, much worse. Listen then a while, and hear patiently the following enumeration of thy deeds, wherein I will not touch any domestic and light offense, if yet any of them are light, but only those open ones, which are spread far and wide in the knowledge of all men. Did not thou, in the very beginning of thy youth, terribly oppress with sword, spear, and fire the king thine uncle, together with his courageous bands of soldiers, whose countenance in battles were not unlike those of young lions? Not regarding the words of the prophet, who says, The bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. And even if the sequel of thy sins were not such as ensued, yet what retribution could thou expect for this offense, only at the hands of the just judge, who hath said by his prophet, Woe be to thee who spoilest, and thou shalt not thyself be spoiled? And thou who killest, shalt not thyself be killed? And when thou shalt make an end of thy spoiling, then shalt thou thyself fall. But when the imagination of thy violent rule had succeeded according to thy wishes, and thou wast urged by a desire to return to the right way, night and day the consciousness of thy crimes afflicted thee, while thou did ruminate on the Lord's ritual and the ordinances of the monks, and then publish to the world and vow thyself before God a monk with no intention to be unfaithful, as thou did say, having burst through those toils in which such a great beast as thyself were used to become entangled, whether it were love of rule, of gold, or silver, or, what is stronger still, the fancies of thine own heart, and did thou not, as a dove which cleaves the yielding air with pinions, and by its rapid turns escapes the furious hawk, safely return to the cells where the saints repose as a most certain place of refuge? Oh, how great a joy it should have been to our mother church, if the enemy of all mankind had not lamentedly pulled thee, as it were, out of her bosom. Oh, what an abundant flame of heavenly hope would have been kindled in the hearts of desperate sinners, hadst thou remained in thy blessed estate. Oh, what great rewards in the kingdom of Christ would have been laid upon thy soul against the day of judgment, if thy crafty wolf had not caught thee, 
Who of a wolf was now become a lamb, not much against thine own will, out of the fold of our Lord, and made thee of a lamb, a wolf like unto himself again? Oh, how great a joy would the preservation of thy salvation have been to God, the Father of all the saints, had not the devil, the father of all castaways, as an eagle of monstrous wings and claws, carried thee captive away against all rights and reasons, to the unhappy band of his children. And to be short, thy conversion to righteousness gave as a great joy to heaven and earth, as now thy detestable return, like a dog to his vomit, breedeth grief and lamentation, which being done, the members which should have been busily employed as the armor of justice for the Lord are now become the armor of inequity and sin for the devil. For now, thou dost not listen to the praises of God sweetly sounded forth by the pleasant voices of Christ's soldiers, nor the instruments of ecclesiastical melody. But thy own praises, which are nothing, ring out in the fashion of the giddy rout of Bacchus by the mouths of thy villainous followers, accompanied with lies and malice to the utter destruction of the neighbors, so that the vessel prepared for the service of God is now turned into a vessel of dirt. And what was once reputed worthy of heavenly honor is now cast, as it deserves, into the bottomless pit of hell. Yet, nearly as thy sensual mind, which is overcome by the excesses of thy follies, at all checked in its course with committing so many sins. But hot and prone, like a young colt that covets every pleasant pasture, runneth headlong forward with irrevocable fury through the intended fields of crime, continually increasing the number of its transgressions. For thy former marriage of thy first wife, although after thy violated vow of religion she was not lawfully thine, but only by right of the time she was with thee, was now despised by thee. And another woman, the wife of a man then living, and he no stranger, but thine own brother's son, enjoyed thy affections. Upon which occasion, that stiff neck of thine, already laden with sins, is now burdened with two monstrous murders, the one of thy aforesaid nephew, the other of her who once was thy wedded wife. And thou art now from low to lower, and from bad to worse, bowed, bent, and sunk down into the lowest depth of sacrilege. Afterwards, also didst thou publicly marry the widow by whose deceit and suggestion such a heavy weight of offenses was undergone, and take her lawfully, as the flattering tongues of thy parasites with false words pronounced it, but as we say, most wickedly, to be thy own in wedlock? And therefore, what holy man is there who, moved with the narration of such a history, would not presently break out into weeping and lamentations? What priest, whose heart lieth open to God, would not instantly, upon hearing this, exclaim with anguish in the language of the prophet, Who shall give water to my head, and to my eyes a fountain of tears? And I will day and night bewail those of my people who are slaughtered. For full little, alas, hast thou, with thine own ears, listened to that reprehension of the prophet, speaking in this wise, Woe be unto you, O wicked men, who have left the law of the most holy God, and if ye shall be born, your portion shall be to malediction, and if ye die, to malediction shall be your portion. All things that are from this earth, and to earth shall be converted again so shall wicked from malediction pass to perdition. 
If they return not unto our Lord, listening to this admonition, Son, thou hast offended, add no further offense thereunto, but rather pray for the forgiveness of the former. And again, be not slow to be converted unto our Lord, neither put off from the same from day to day, for his wrath doth come suddenly. Because, as the scripture saith, when the king heareth the unjust word, all under his dominion become wicked. And the just king, according to the prophet, raiseth up his religion. But warnings truly are not wanting to thee, since thou had had for thy instructor the most eloquent master of almost all of Britain. Take heed thereof, lest that which Solomon noteth befall thee, which is, even as he stirreth up a sleeping man out of his heavy sleep, so is that person who declareth wisdom unto a fool. For in the end of his speech will he say, What hast thou first spoken? Wash thy heart, as it is written, from malice, O Jerusalem, that thou mayest be saved. Despise not, I beseech thee, the unspeakable mercy of God, calling by his prophet the wicked in his way from their offenses. I will on a sudden speak to the nation and to the kingdom, that I may root out and disperse and destroy and overthrow. As for the sinner, he doth in this wise exhort him vehemently to repent. And if the same people shall repent from their offense, I will also repent the evil which I have said that I would do unto them. And again, who will give them such a heart that they will hear me and keep my commandments, and that it may be well with them all the days of their lives? And also in the Canticle of Deuteronomy, a people without counsel and prudence, I wish they would be wise and understand and foresee the last of all, how one pursueth a thousand and to put to flight ten thousand. And again, our Lord in the gospel, come unto me, all ye who do labor and are burdened, and I will make ye rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am meek and humble of heart, and ye shall find repose in your souls. For if thou turn a deaf ear to these admonitions, condemn the prophets, and despise Christ, and make no account for us, humble though we be, so long as with sincere piety and purity of mind we bear in the mind that saying of the prophet, that we may not be found dumb dogs not able to bark. However, I for my part may not be of that singular fortitude and spirit and virtue of our Lord as to declare to the house of Jacob their sins and to the house of Israel their offenses. And so long as we shall remember that of Solomon, he who says that the wicked are just shall be accursed among the people and odious to nations, for they who reprove them shall have better hopes. And again, respect, not with reverence thy neighbor in his ruin, nor forbear to speak in time of salvation. And as long also as we forget not this, root out those who are led to death, and forbear not to redeem them who are murdered. Because, as the same prophet says, riches shall not profit in the day of wrath, but justice delivereth from death. And if the just indeed be hardly saved, where shall the wicked and sinner appear? If, as I said, thou scorn us, who obey these texts, the dark flood of hell shall without doubt eternally drown thee in that deadly whirlpool and those terrible streams of fire that shall ever torment and never consume thee.
And then shall the confession of thy pains and sorrow for thy sins be altogether too late and unprofitable to one, who now, in this accepted time and day of salvation, deferreth his conversion to a more righteous way of life. Gildas. Wow. So, there's a ton of stuff to talk about in there, right? Well, that's good news, because Maelgwyn is a fairly major character. And I think we should start at the beginning. And starting at the beginning is pretty much starting with his name. So, Mael, the first part of his name, basically translates to prince. And Gwyn translates to dog, or hound. So his name, Maelgwyn, directly translates to princely hound, but in our modern language, it probably meant something more along the lines of warhound. So either this was something of a nickname, or his parents were rather prophetic in how they named their son. And we know that he existed. More than that, we know that he was a very powerful king of Wales in the 6th century, probably the most powerful in the region, and was almost certainly deserving of the title of Bretwalda had Bede been a little less jingoistic. We can say that because the records seem to indicate that he was in a dominant position not just over the Welsh kingdoms, but also their British northern allies. So he was possibly something along the lines of an overking, which jives rather well with the fact that he donated to religious individuals outside of his kingdom as well as inside of his kingdom. So what we're learning of this guy is that he was a pretty big deal. But if we believe Gildas, his life also seems to have belonged in something of a soap opera. Now, as for his lineage, other sources point to Maelgwyn being a descendant of Cunetha. But like we spoke about earlier, these lineages are really unreliable at the best of times, and Cunetha might be a mythic character, so that makes it even more unreliable in this case. What we can say is that he's the first of his line that we can be sure actually existed and held the throne. So for all intents and purposes, we might as well see him as the founder of his dynasty. And what a founder he was. This guy was exactly what you'd want in a leader during a warlike era. Large, imposing, effective on the battlefield, intelligent, and decisive. Now, Gildas would prefer more holy traits in his leaders, and we'll get to those in a bit. But if you're dealing with a lot of internal violence, you want Aegon the Conqueror, not Aemon the Maester. But when he was looking at these traits, Gildas felt that he was less of a leader and honestly more of a beast of the apocalypse. I know, big surprise, right? And in this case, he felt that he was a dragon. And we're told that out of all the tyrants in Wales, he was the worst. Also, the biggest. Why do we know that? Well, because Gildas spends a good amount of time focusing on Maelgwyn's physical appearance about how physically imposing he was, both in strength and in height. And it seems like the old monk had a hard time reconciling how someone could be so physically gifted, the most gifted of all tyrants in Wales, in fact, and yet fail to be equally godly. That's one of those fun biases that we'll see persist throughout much of history, the belief that appearance reflects whatever's underneath. And Gildas was clearly wrestling with it. And on top of it all, there might have also been a little jealousy going on there as well. I don't know how tall and muscular Gildas was, but it does seem like he's got a little bit of that whole short man thing going on. Anyway, despite what Gildas has to say, Maelgwyn is not without complexity. He's not just a giant evil creature. For example, we're told of his great largesse, which, like we spoke about in other episodes, is one of the major duties of a monarch during this period. You're expected to be giving in addition to being an effective leader. 
But Gildas discounts this out of hand and states that it doesn't make up for Maelgwyn's excessive sins and how he's deprived tyrants and kingdoms of their lives. In particular, we're told that Maelgwyn's sins are so numerous that the rant will only deal with the big offenses, not the minor ones. And Gildas actually admits that he's drawing from, essentially, the rumor mill by only talking about the sins that are, quote, spread far and wide in the knowledge of all men, end quote. And that sounds like gossip to me. And it doesn't take a genius to imagine that some of those rumors were being spread by deposed tyrants and their supporters. So we're not looking at the most unbiased of accounts here. But that's what we have, so what can you do? So we're told that when Maelgwyn was young, he fought his maternal uncle, the king, and took the throne with sword, spear, and fire. And that sounds like it was probably a siege, since fire isn't something that you usually see on a battlefield. Maybe there was a fight and a retreat to a strong point, or maybe it just started at a strong point, like the Battle of Finsburg. Either way, it sounds to me like the king was burned out of his defensive position and then killed. And not just the king, but we're told that many young warriors in the king's retinue also died, and those would have been some of the best soldiers in the land. And Gildas is understandably grouchy about that. And he follows up his description with some quotes from the Bible about how Maelgwyn should expect a short life and that his fate is to be killed as he is a killer. And consequently, Maelgwyn's continued life must have bugged our loony little narrator somewhat. But then we're told something amazing happened. Maelgwyn had a change of heart and joined a monastery. Now, it seems like it was alluded to that he kind of ducked into the monastery because there were some problems at home. Maybe there was some pushback after he killed his uncle or something. We're not entirely sure. But whatever. The most powerful king in Wales was joining the army of God. This was going to change everything. I mean, Gildas specifically alludes to Maelgwyn being under the control of the devil. But now that's over. And consequently, he felt that this wasn't just great for Maelgwyn's soul, but it was great for all of Wales. And this sort of behavior, the abandoning of a crown and taking the monk's robes, wasn't entirely unheard of during this period. St. Caddoch reportedly refused to enter politics in southern Wales, despite his pedigree, and instead entered a religious life. So this does sometimes happen. But Caddoch hadn't killed anyone, so, you know, there is that. Anyway, so despite the whole kinslaying thing, it looks like Maelgwyn had put away his sword, put on a robe, and now was learning from one of the greatest minds in Britain. In fact, there's a good chance that he was learning at the feet of St. Iltude, who might have been a pupil of St. Germanus. Do you remember him? He was the guy who kept the Holy Spirit around as a firefighter? Well, Iltude was probably his pupil, but at the very least, he was definitely classically educated. So that would have been quite a benefit for Maelgwyn. And we're also told that Iltude had the gift of clairvoyance, that he had foresight, he could see into the future. So all of this is pretty good for Maelgwyn. And so after all of that gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair that we've been sitting through, we finally have our happy ending. And everything is gonna be great, right? Nope, it turns out that, at least according to Gildas, Satan got his claws into Maelgwyn again. So, Maelgwyn the monk left the monastery and went back to being Maelgwyn the king, and we're told that he returned to his old ways, which Gildas colorfully describes as a dog eating its own vomit. Oh, Gildas. Also, come on, Saint Altude. You're supposed to see the future. You couldn't see this coming? 
Anyway, so Gildas tells us how awful this was for Wales, and also how Maelgwyn wasn't going to get all the fabulous cash and prizes that awaited him in heaven. But that's okay, because even Gildas had to recognize that the king had all kinds of followers who were singing his praises. But apparently, that didn't count, because the followers were villainous. And he also references Bacchus in his ranting, so maybe Maelgwyn or his followers were drunk. I don't know. But here's the thing. This is another example where Gildas fails to see complexity in the people that he's writing to. Sure, he left the monastery and returned to the throne, and he went back to fighting. He might have been called back from the monastery to fight, in fact. Who knows? But it looks like he was still a strong supporter of Christianity. And yet Gildas almost completely discounts that. You have to really dig to see any reference to his behavior regarding charity and things like that. But, like I said, Maelgwyn was a complex character. For example, he founded churches all throughout his kingdom, and also outside of his own borders. And he's connected to all kinds of saints. Brynach, Kadok, Kibi, Padarn, and Tydeco. And those saints existed all throughout Wales, not just in his kingdom. He's also associated, according to sources written much later, with the foundation of the major religious site of Bangor. So there's a lot more going on with this guy than simply what we're being told. But it seems like Gildas was too busy being absolutely enraged that Maelgwyn's forces were fighting and winning battles against his British neighbors, which he related to abandoning the fight for God and now fighting for the devil. So it looks like he wasn't inclined to cut the king any slack. And I guess Gildas losing his mind shouldn't be too much of a surprise, because we already know that internal warfare was a major trigger for Gildas. That man hated Brit-on-Brit -Brit violence. But you know what else he hated? Lasciviousness. Yep, it's not a Gildasian rant unless there's a little sex thrown in. And apparently, Maelgwyn was rather popular with the ladies, and he had a substantial appetite. I mean, Gildas goes so far as to describe him as a young colt in the pastures of pleasure. Good to know that horse comparisons have a long and storied history. So what did Maelgwyn do to earn this attack? Well, he put his wife aside when he entered the monastery, which actually was okay, he was expected to do that. But then when he left the monastery, Maelgwyn didn't take his wife back. Instead, he took up with another woman. Who? Well. It was actually the wife of his own nephew. And it looks like neither his ex-wife nor the nephew were pleased by this. So Maelgwyn did the right thing. Wait, did I say the right thing? I meant the thing that will get you on the cover of the Daily Mail. He killed his nephew and his ex-wife. And then he married his nephew's widow. Like you do. Gildas' account then devolves into a rage, talking about how no godly person could see this and not cry out in anguish and disgust. Gildas really hated Maelgwyn. And not only that, but he was enraged by the fact that Maelgwyn wasn't in need of warning since he was taught by one of the greatest minds in Wales while in the monastery. But that wasn't going to stop him. So in the end, Gildas goes the full nine by burying Maelgwyn under a landslide of biblical quotes. Almost like he was saying, sure, you went to school, and that's great and all, but this is my house, and I'll always know more than you. And then he caps it off with, of course, threats of hell. Now, from our modern perspective, this doesn't seem too persuasive, since modern people typically don't respond well to insults and threats. But maybe it was different back then. However, I kind of doubt it, since we don't have any indication that Maelgwyn put his crown aside and returned to a religious life. In fact, 
It looks like he continued to reign in Gwyneth until he died during the Great Mortality of 547. Incidentally, the Great Mortality of 547 was that horrific plague that exploded out of the Mediterranean, hit Britain, and some have theorized that the British population were more susceptible to this particular plague than the Germanic counterparts, and that might account for the turning of the tide against the British population and towards the Anglo-Saxons. Anyway, during that whole period, it looks like Maelgwyn croaked. And tradition says that he's buried at Llanros, or maybe at Inesserial, and that following his death, rule fell to his son, Rune. And it looks like Rune ended up at war with the northern British kingdoms of Alcut and Gadothan, and that the army of Gwyneth went north and stayed up there for quite some time. But eventually, the war ended in the death of Rune, who was then succeeded by his son, Beli. And Beli is a largely unknown ruler. So what we're looking at here is that the story of Gwyneth from this period looks like it was one that started with a bang and then just sort of fizzled out over the decades. Probably with some help from the North saying, you know what, we had to serve under Maelgwyn, but we don't want to serve anymore. But oh well, this line will bounce back eventually, but that's a story for another time. And with that, we're done with the Kings of Wales that Gildas absolutely hated. So congrats if you listened this far and got through all the bile and rage of our favorite 6th century writer, and hopefully now you have a better understanding of why I keep on insisting that Gildas wasn't a historian, and he was a bit nutty. Alright, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory, and you can find us on Twitter, just search for at britishpodcast, and of course there's the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums, and we'll see you over there. Okay, thanks for listening. Alright, BHP Pub Quiz, number two, the Wales edition. I assume you all know the drill, so get your pen and paper ready, and here we go. One, what was the name of the British rebel who fought alongside his brother, Togodomnus, against the Roman invasion? And there's a bonus point if you know his name in Latin as well as his name in Welsh. Number two. Which tribe of Wales fought and defeated a Roman legion? Number three. Anglesey was a major site for what religion? Number four. The Roman fortress of Deva lives on as an English city. Name that city. Number five. True or false? 75% of the legions of Britannia were active on the borders of Wales during the height of the subjugation. Number six. Druidism persisted in Wales until the A, third century, B, fourth century, C, fifth century, D, sixth century, or E, it's still going. Number seven. Hengist and Horsa were hired by, and eventually clashed with, a British overking. What was the name of that overking? And bonus question, what connection does the kingdom of Poes have to him? Number eight. Did St. Germanus visit Britannia before or after Rome pulled out? Number nine. After Rome pulled out, we're told by Gildas 
that an old Celtic fashion accessory came back into style in Wales. Name that fashion accessory. Number 10. True or false? Literacy vanished in Wales within 100 years of the withdrawal of Rome. Number 11. Canetha is a major character in the history of Gwynedd. We're told that he came from the Votadini and was brought down to fight a group of barbarians in North Wales. Where did those barbarians come from? Number 12. One of the most famous inscriptions from this period was located in Devid. It's a particularly important one because it's a bilingual inscription, and both languages are speaking about the same person. What were the two languages that appear on the stone? One point each. Number 13, and let's stay in Devid. Now the royal line of the kingdom of Devid traced their lineage through a famous emperor. Name that emperor. Number 14. Constantine, the king of Domnonia, had a mother. We all do, I suppose. But Gildas really didn't like his mother, and he said something rather unforgettable about her. What did he call Constantine's mother? Number 15. In addition to being a ladies' man, Constantine was also a murderer, according to Gildas, at least. He killed two royal youths in a church while they were in the arms of their mother. And he did this all while in a disguise that really offended Gildas. What was that disguise? Number 16. True or false? According to some traditions, it looks like Constantine gave up his crown sometime after Gildas's rant, and he became a monk, and eventually became a saint. Number 17. One point each. Name the apocalyptic animals that Gildas compared the Welsh kings to. Number 18. True or false? Cunaglas translates in Latin to Tawny Butcher. Number 19. One of the kings that Gildas wrote about probably deserved the title of Bretwalda. Was it A. Constantine? B. Aurelius Canonis, C. Votoporius, D. Cunaglas, or E. Maelgwyn. Number 20. True or false? If Gildas was alive today, his writing style would probably fit right in on the comment section of YouTube. Alright, as always, if you need more time, just hit pause, and if you missed any questions, just rewind, and we'll wait for you here. Okay, do you have all your answers written down? Here we go. Number one. What was the name of the British rebel who fought alongside his brother Togodomnus against the Roman invasion? Well, in Latin, they called him Caractacus. But in Welsh, he's known as Caradog. Number two. Which Welsh tribe fought and defeated a Roman legion? Well, that was the Solures. Number three. Anglesey was a major site of what religion? Druidism. Number four. The Roman fortress of Deva lives on as an English city. Name that city. It's the city of Chester. Number five. True or false, 75% of the legions of Britannia were active on the borders of Wales during the height of the subjugation? That is true. 
There were three legions active on the borders or inside Wales during the height, and there were only four in Britannia total. Number six, Druidism persisted in Wales until the B, fourth century. Now, some of you might have picked E, but the revival of Druidism is more appropriately called Neo-Druidism, as most of the religion has been lost over time. Number seven, Hengist and Horsa were hired by and eventually clashed with Vortigern. And for the bonus question, Vortigern is connected to the kingdom of Poes because they trace their royal lineage through him. Number eight, did St. Germanus visit Britannia before or after Rome pulled out? He visited after. Number nine, after Rome pulled out, we're told by Gildas that an old Celtic fashion accessory came back into style in Wales. What was that item? That was the torque. And they look pretty fantastic. They should come back again. Number 10. True or false, literacy vanished in Wales within 100 years of the withdrawal of Rome. False. And in fact, Gildas is evidence that you could even get a classical education as much as 100 years after Rome pulled out. Number 11. Canetha is a major character in the history of Gwyneth. We're told that he came from the Votadini and was brought down to fight a group of barbarians in North Wales. Where were those barbarians from? They were from Ireland. Number 12. One of the most famous inscriptions from this period was located in Devad. And it's particularly important because it's a bilingual inscription. So what were the two languages that appeared on that stone? One point each. They were Ogham and Latin. Number 13, the royal line of David traces their lineage through a famous emperor named that emperor. Well, it's an emperor that appears all over the place in Wales, Magnus Maximus. Number 14, Gildas really didn't like Constantine's mum, and he said something rather unforgettable about her. What did he call Constantine's mother? He called her an unclean lioness. Number 15, in addition to being a ladies' man, Constantine was also a murderer, at least according to Gildas. And he killed two royal youths in a church when they were in the arms of their mother. And he did this all while in a disguise that offended Gildas. What was that disguise? Constantine was apparently dressed up like an abbot. But he was an abbot heavily armed. He had a sword and spear with him. But an abbot nonetheless. Number 16, true or false? According to some traditions, it looks like Constantine gave up his crown sometime after Gildas' rant and became a monk and eventually a saint. That is true. Number 17, one point each. Name the apocalyptic animals that Gildas compared the Welsh kings to. Those animals are the lion, the leopard, the dragon, and the bear. Number 18, true or false, Cunaglas translates in Latin to Tawny Butcher. False, though Gildas thought it did. Number 19, one of the kings that Gildas wrote to probably deserves the title of Bretwalda. He was a pretty powerful king and served as kind of an overking over a number of different kingdoms. Which king was it? It was E, Maelgwyn. 
And number 20, true or false? If Gildas was alive today, his writing style would probably fit right in on the comment section of YouTube. I can't prove it, but I'm thinking that one's true. I think he'd fit right in there. There's quite a lot of ranting and spittle and wild accusations that are probably entirely baseless. Yeah, I think he'd fit right in on the YouTube comments. Okay, well that's it for our second pub quiz. I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.